Okay, let's get started. Those of you who are at home joining us, thanks for joining us, as well as those here in the auditorium. Just a couple announcements. What we're going to be doing this evening is at the end of our, not even at the end, excuse me, in about uh, 35 minutes, we're going to have the kids back here. We're going to do communion, and uh, the elements are back there on the table, and you are welcome to go and get those if you haven't yet. Parents of elementary age, we're going to tell the elementary age back there that they aren't supposed to take it from the table, that you'll have it in hand for them. So if your kids are participating in communion, we assume that you you're picking up the elements for them, and that'll help keep things moving when they come into the auditorium. Wednesday, we're going to be doing a Bible study, 10 a.m., and then also 7 p.m., same Bible study, but we'll do that at two different spots. And again, when we do the Bible study in the morning, we'll do it in such a way that we're here in the auditorium, be able to spread out and ask you to wear a mask for those who may come in the morning, may feel more comfortable. Once you get seated, that's up to you. And in the evening, we'll see how that works out with those come, and in the future, we'll probably make a little bit of adjustment for the evening, but uh, we won't do that every week, but we'll do it at least now every other couple weeks. What we want to get started this evening is into our Bible study and jump right into it because I have a time frame limit that I have to stop by a certain time and I won't get through the material probably at all. So let's head over to the Foundations booklet, the one that we've been studying through, and we're going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to get started as we go through it. I shared this with you several years ago, and it was from the U.S. Peace Corps right around 2010. They have put together a manual for the workers who were in the Amazon jungles. I don't know if you remember this, that in this manual it had one section, what do you do if you're attacked by a boa constrictor, by an anaconda? And it gave a page of material that if you're working in the jungle, you should be prepared. And it went like this, that if you're, and here's a quote from it, okay, 10 steps to keep in mind to survive an anaconda attack. Number one, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, immediately lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your side your legs tight against one another. Number three, tuck your chin in. Number four, the anaconda will come, begin to nudge, and climb over your body. Number five, the snake has examined you. It will begin to swallow you from the feet end, always the feet end first. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and your ankles. At this point, I have quit the Peace Corps. Okay. <laughs> Number six, the snake will work its way to your legs. This will take a long time. Do not panic. Are you serious? Okay. When the snake has swallowed you to the knee, slowly with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, gently slide to the side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of the mouth and your leg, and then suddenly rip upwards, cutting the snake's head and ending its life. Number nine, be sure you have your knife with you at all times. Okay. And number 10, be sure your knife is sharp. Okay. With that advertisement for the Peace Corps, I have just quit. Okay. That's not something I'm going to join. But what they have done is they have, in seriousness, they have prepared their volunteers who are coming in. They've given them some, you know, some discouraging, threatening, uh, upsetting information, but valuable information. The same thing is true when we come with you and I are going to train somebody in following the Lord. We need to be able to say, hey, there's a reality as a disciple of Christ. I'm doing this Bible study with you. I'm trying to help you to get grounded in the faith. I need to tell them some basic truths that initially might sound unsettling. You're going to face some temptations even after you're, going to be, after you're saved. The Satan will attack you. And basically, there's three sources of temptations or attacks that will come against you. You're the flesh, the world, the devil. And it is essential that we tell them how to prepare for that, to keep the knife with them. Make sure it's sharp. What to do if you're attacked. And so that's why this section that we're talking about 
about tonight. This section that is talking in chapter 8, we're at page number 133, it's how to resist temptation when it comes. So you're following me with Emmanuel, we're at 1 Corinthians, let's get into the topic. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a verse that talks about this idea of being attacked. Now keep this in mind, I, I, I forgot I wanted to share this with you. As a Christian, you no longer have to sin. That is a fact. You don't have to. But you and I are going to struggle with it and we're going to have a problem. And that's where we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 that starts off, that says, that talks about that whole idea of God being faithful. Did I say 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Okay, I did, and I, I'm in the wrong spot. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So I know I don't have to sin, but when I'm tempted, and we're going to be tempted, Christ was, I need to remember God is faithful. God is faithful in what aspect? He's made two promises. We talked about this last week where we wrapped up. What are the two promises in the verse that we just read? God who is faithful to you, who, who when you're tempted, what has he promised you? Okay, he's going to make a way of escape. Not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. No temptation that comes against you from the flesh, from Satan, from the world is, is, is in, uh, unbeatable. You can resist it. It's, it's not irresistible. You can do it because God knows he will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, and with it he provides a way of escape. That idea doesn't mean that you won't have them, but he'll give you the power and the assistance to be able to defeat the temptation. We are in that section that's talking about where does the help from God come? And there are several sources that God has given you to resist temptation. They're listed here. We're going to talk about them in your book. Is an interesting article that I was reading that was a survey out of uh, the Discipleship Journal about different Christians that were commenting, and they surveyed, and they said, what are the major areas of temptation that you as a mature believer are facing. And these people who responded, they said these are the, the major areas that they as American Christians face, that they struggle with. They asked following it up. They said, what do you do? How do you respond? And when are you most vulnerable? So after they listed where were the areas that were real problems for born-again believers who are mature, discipling other individuals, then they responded. They said, the temptations come, and they gave some ideas. I am most vulnerable when, number one, when I'm neglecting my time in the Word or in prayer. 81% 81% respond said, I'm most vulnerable. I think you and I would say that's probably true in our own lives. Several, the large majority said, when I'm physically worn out, when I'm tired, I am much more vulnerable. And they asked, they said, how do you best resist? The survey, they responded, prayer, avoiding situations, personal Bible study, being accountable. It's interesting what some of the topics in the writers of this Bible study that you have on your lap, what they say that they say that you and I can use. They start with those same ideas. Number one, they said the one aid that God has given you is the Holy Spirit. You're close by in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and if you were to turn over there, you would hear and read that section where he is saying to them that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he starts talking. He says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, you, are, you, which you have of God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. Then building upon that, the author quotes from Galatians chapter 5. 
In Galatians 5, it talks about, in verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the, the flesh. These are contrary. And so their point that they want your readers, that you want to share with them, is the Holy Spirit within you is battling your flesh. There's this ongoing struggle. He is trying to rescue you out of the control of your flesh, and you need to decide whose prompting you will listen to, the spirit or your flesh. Sometimes you get, if you go on the internet, you'll say, okay, I want to get a cartoon talking about temptation. And they'll put one little figure here and one little figure here, and they'll give you the idea that there's this battle going on. Well, we understand what that is. It's our old nature, often against the Spirit of God. And that is a battle that we face. But we have to decide who we're going to listen to. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he makes this comment about the Spirit being with you. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill or carry out the desires of the flesh. And so that idea, you have the Spirit in you, but are you following the Spirit's direction? Are you listening to Him? Are you letting Him guide you? He's molding you. He's trying to change you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so the help that God gives the Holy Spirit is there to help us, but whether we listen to him, whether we rely upon him. That gets us back to a doctrine that's not mentioned in your book, but so important, it's called the filling of the Spirit. We are told in Ephesians 5 that we are to yield to the Spirit. We are to let the Spirit control, guide. Filling literally means let him blow you on the course of life as a ship being blown by the winds. And so with that in mind, what that means is we're energized, we're motivated, we're relying, we're allowing him to guide us. So when temptation comes, we're saying, Spirit of God, help me to make the right decision. Spirit of God, what is the right decision? What would you have me to do? It's the idea of relying upon him. I can't resist. This is getting harder. Please strengthen me. Please give me assistance. It's asking him to take control. You, Spirit of God, take control of my temper. Spirit of God, take control of my tongue. That's the idea of spirit yielding, uh, spirit filling. It is yielding to the Spirit of God. It is saying, you've got me at this moment when I am being tempted, take charge. And the Spirit's there, willing to do it, able to do it, if you just yield. It, it was so one article that I was reading, one guy put it this way. He says, letting the Spirit control, he says, I often think this way. When temptation comes knocking at my door and it's saying, you know, here's an offer, here's something that you should do. He says, I often pray to myself, Holy Spirit, you answer the door. You go to the door because the Spirit of God will enable you to resist and he'll take care of that temptation at the door much better than you can. But there's a second help. The second help is scripture that God puts in your lap, that God puts in your, in your devices, that God gives you and me. And we know that the sword of the Spirit, there's one tool in the panoply or in the armor of God. There's only one that's offensive. All the other weapons, the helmet, the breastplate, the, the shoes, the shield, they're all defensive. But the one that is an offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit. And that sword is that small dash, that small Roman sword that you could thrust with in close combat. And he says that's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's defined in Ephesians chapter 6. And he says in Matthew chapter 4 that when Jesus was tempted, and if you turn back there to Matthew 4, Jesus, when he was tempted in the three times, he had a common response. Do you remember what it was? When he was tempted, it's, uh, he said... It is written. He says it every single time. He says when he was tempted in verse 4, verse 7, verse 10, he says, it is written. In other words, Jesus was, who is the God himself, the Son of God, what is he relying on in response to temptation? 
the Word of God. He's got the Word of God at his disposal, and he's letting it make his decisions for him in the middle of this temptation. And he quotes the Word of God directly. You've heard those verses. You know them. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not... Okay, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to thy word. Okay, and so the word of God is powerful, and it is that which will help us to be able to resist temptation, even if we can quote it in the middle of temptation. Therefore, it is helpful, it is essential, we memorize scripture. However, probably within this room, there may be a handful of you who have not quoted scripture any, or have not memorized any passage of scripture, any verses in weeks. You're making yourself weak spiritually. Memorizing scripture, having it at your disposal. Man, we can so quickly reach into our pocket and get something out real quickly when we need it. But that isn't even as essential that we have it in our minds, that it's there, that when we're driving, when we're tempted, we can start resorting back to scripture. In fact, in, if, if, you, uh, if you use another tool that is related to scripture and often is filled with scripture and is easy to help for you to memorize it. Do you know what it is? That also when you're tempted, you can start using it. And it's probably easier to come to mind if you memorize it this way. Singing. Yeah, if you memorize spiritual songs that are filled with phrases of Scripture so that when you're tempted, all of a sudden use it. Shift that mind, shift that direction. You cannot quote what you do not know, so you better be busy memorizing Scripture. Now, if you look in your book, and if you're discipling somebody, you're going to need this section. Look at page 137. There is a whole list of different battles, difficulties, struggles that people have, and it gives you verses that apply, that you may say to an individual, this is a verse you can use. In fact, you might look at some of that list of some of those difficulties and say, here's verses related to that I want to memorize. It's a good tool. Have it available. Promote it and encourage people to use it that way. We already mentioned that this whole concept of memorizing goes right along with what Jesus said, what the psalmist said. Jesus said in his prayer, his high priestly prayer the night before he died, sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. The cleansing comes through the word of God. I was reading an article that of, uh, it's a couple years old, out of the Denver Post, that an individual, and we have the name there, that the, the farmer, the rancher there, they had sheep there that kept on getting attacked by different wolves. They tried everything, staying out there, having a weapon, having traps, putting out different types of, of poisons, but they were still losing the numbers of herd each and every year, and they were having a problem. And then they heard about it and they purchased some llamas. The llamas are a very bold animal, very curious animal. And what happens is they found out that as the wolves would come around the herd of sheep, the llamas would head towards the wolves. And as a result, they were scaring them off. And it became something that was a tool that was provided by nature itself that saved dozens and dozens and dozens of their investments within the herd. Isn't the Word of God like that? The Word of God kind of is, is not intimidated. It is powerful. So when temptation comes, use the Word of God. Let it be put out there to help you to resist your temptations. The third area that they talk about is prayer. The area of prayer we know that we read about in Matthew chapter 6. This is the Our Father prayer. And in Matthew 24, this is, or 26, excuse me, this is when God, Jesus, is talking to Peter and he says to the disciples in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane, he says, you need to pray. In fact, do you remember 
What he says in Matthew chapter 6 where he talks in talking about the value of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he says, lead us not into temptation. Okay, And it's one of those wording, those phrases from that world. Those, it's, it's a form of grammar, letotes is what it's called, that when he says, lead us not into temptation, it's not the idea God is tempted to do that. God is thinking of doing it. It's a prayer that basically says something that means the opposite. Lead us away from temptation is the prayer. That's the essence of it in that grammatical sense. And so he's saying, okay, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from it, from the evil, lead us away. And in Matthew 26, when he comes to the men and they're sleeping, he says to them, this is the time when he says your, your uh, spirit is willing, but your... Okay, do you remember what he says about pray? About prayer? Pray that you enter not into temptation. That's at that moment that the disciples are there and Peter's going to have that challenge in minutes. He says, watch and pray that you enter not in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the point. The point is Jesus is saying prayer is powerful. That when you pray on a daily basis, you're praying, God, help me to overcome this temper. Help me to overcome my gossiping mouth. Help me to be careful at work, that I work hard, that I'm doing my best. Help me, Father, to keep a pure mind. And so that whole idea of praying, we know it's benefit. God helps us. He hears us. We know it's benefit that we're relying more upon the Lord when we pray. We're not relying upon ourselves. And so Jesus, by example, Jesus, by, by um, exhortation, says use prayer. And so we have these tools God has given us. We've got the Spirit. We've got God's Word. We've got prayer. What else do we've got? Do we have that helps us? A fear of God. A fear of God. You've got to define this, okay? Because people today, when you say you need a fear of God, they're not sure what that really means. So you define what is a fear of the Lord. Is it you're afraid of God? Is that what it is? That you, you run from him because you fear him as somebody cruel and awful? Is that the fear of God? No. Define what the fear of God is. Reverence, okay? Other words? Respect. respect. Any other words? An awe? Good. Anything else that you would say? And you're, you're teaching a, a third grader this. What's the fear of God? Okay. Okay. Is it, is it a healthy respect that says, God could damn me? Yes? He could. Or as a believer, he's not going to damn us, but what could he do? He could discipline us. Okay, that's that healthy respect. Another defense against temptation is a proper fear of God. Don't let people confuse you. Why would you fear your own father? If scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, the fear of God is best defined as a great awe or reverence. Some of you already said that. It also includes the dread of displeasing him and even a dread of sin's consequences, or we would say chastisement, that God could allow into our life, that we reap what we sow. And so that fear of the Lord is very, very important. And I put down this phrase that although God is both father and friend to the Christian, he is still a holy God of creation who cannot tolerate sin. He's, he deserves to be feared that though he is my friend, he is my brother, he is my companion, he is also my judge. 
he is the one who, if I offend him, he can still mete out some form of correction or discipline in my life. And so that's the healthy respect that we would have for God. In fact, in Proverbs 6, verse 6, okay, here's a quote from it. And by the fear of the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, men depart from evil. Now in your book it says, write what you mean, understand that to mean. And so here's what Pastor Art wrote when he put these notes together. He said, my respect for and realization of who God is <clears throat> should compel me to avoid sin and evil. That's a good way of putting it. Now you write down whatever you want on that page 135, but put it in there. Have the person you're going through the Bible study with uh, just elaborate what they mean by that. I wrote down the same type of idea. Realizing God hates and disciplines sin, it'll cause people to get away from sin. And so we go a little bit further. We understand that this is exactly what Joseph of the Old Testament did. In Genesis 39, he says, when he is tempted, how can I, and he asks the question, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Even though his parents weren't there, even though she was making the, the approach, he still realized this was wrong. It would offend God. He saw it as wrong, as offensive, and he feared the Lord in that moment that even though he had the green light by circumstances, he had a red light from God Almighty. That's a fear of the Lord. That is a healthy respect of the Lord. That leads us to a number five. And number five, tool that God has helped you. It is basically that idea of fleeing feet means say no. Say no to the thing. Joseph's fear of God resulted in what we might call fleeing feet. Remember what happened? She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. He left his garment in her hand and fled forth. And then they ask you, describe what he did. Yeah, you can do that real quickly. You could put down these things. He didn't hang around the sin, the temptation. He didn't stay close to it. He literally got out of there. He got far away from the temptation. Again, do we live in a society where we think we are invincible and we can get close to the very edge and he's saying, don't do that. Run from it. Put distance between you and the temptation. And we talked about that last time, where we talked about, it says, make no provision for the flesh. Okay, so let's jump into where he even makes that comment. Put, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. In other words, don't give your flesh the opportunity. That would mean this. Okay, stay away from places of temptation for you. That would mean this. If you're a recovering alcoholic, alcoholic, stay away from the bar. Okay, don't go there. Okay, praying for deliverance, you should stay out of that area. Have a healthy respect for your own tendency to sin. That means that you take necessary precautions. If you're an individual who has a problem, and let's say a very common problem, in modern society, is, yeah, without being risque, but a very common problem is porn. Okay, then that means what you do is you don't put yourself in a spot where you're on that computer by yourself. You make yourself, you know, you, you put distance between you and that opportunity. If you've got a problem where you are an individual that you respond by, you know, going into eating binges, okay, then you've got to do something to create some distance between you and that opportunity, okay? Then you need to move in with Mother Hubbard. Okay, you know, and to make sure that there's bare cupboards. Do something. If you're an individual, I remember counseling years ago with some lady. She says, whenever I got a little bit disappointed, I would go on shopping binges, and I this was I would just put us in debt with my credit card and just go out there. It would make me feel good until I was all done, because what happens? You got to pay for it. 
And then it would create more and more problems. And she said, how do I overcome this? Okay, it's going to be a battle, but one of the first things you do is... Oh, yeah, you said it. Okay, okay, yeah. Stay out of stores. You know, get rid of the credit cards. De- remove the, the opportunity. So it's just being practical. And then doing this, making yourself accountable. Being accountable, again, where none of us are the lone ranger, there is a verse, and we need to define this verse. It says, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, there are some churches that have taken this verse and they have developed an entire system of control. Okay, do you know what I'm getting at? Okay, there are systems. I grew up in that church. You grew up in that church. We grew up and we were told that when it means confess your faults one to another, we were to go and confess them to the priest or the clergyman, and then that person determined whether or not we could have forgiveness. A great control factor, okay? Because if we offended him, he wouldn't give us the blessing of forgiveness. An absolute dominating, controlling factor. This verse is not talking about that system of confession, that sacrament. It's not that idea. In fact, looking at the wording. Yeah, we don't even have to talk to Greek. Confess your faults to who? It's reciprocating. Did you ever have in confession your priest confess his sin to you? No. No, never. Never. So we know that's not what this idea is. This is believers helping believers who struggle. This is the idea of spiritual healing is in concept here. Achieving victory over sins. In other words, we confess... By saying, hey, I, I'm struggling with something. Art, you're my friend. Would you, you know, here's where I'm battling. Help me to be accountable. Check up on me. You know, just, you know, pray with me about this. And, and ask me periodically. Keep me on, keep me, you know, on, on guard by knowing that you're going to come and check up on me. And so it's that type of idea. Keep me accountable. Pray for me. And it's a powerful, powerful tool. Now those are the tools that God has given. And so your book goes a little bit further and it reminds you that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And he's using the idea that two people working together, they, they, can, they can, he says, if one falls, the one will lift him up. But woe to him that is alone when he falls for he has not one help. And so you look at this and say, okay, you're doing the Bible study. You're going to say, why is it better to work as a team than to be all by yourself? And they'll say, two can get more done. Two can encourage one another. If somebody's injured, somebody's, somebody's struggling, the second person can help them out. We understand that in the work world. Well, the Word of God says do the same thing in the spiritual realm that says, listen, don't go it alone. Have somebody help you be accountable, whether it be your spouse or somebody that's a good friend that can help keep you accountable. Here's our facts. Our facts. All of us have a sin nature that'll be around until we go to heaven. Fact number two. We will be tempted by our flesh, Satan, the world, and the world over and over again. Fact number three. They're subtle, persistent, appealing. They're hard to resist. Fact number four. Because Christ and his provisions, none of us has to sin. Give in to the temptation. You can and ought to be the servant of God. Say no to sin. So many verses that support this. Just go to the book of Romans. The book of Romans talks about this idea that we are dead to sin. We don't have to sin anymore. We're not supposed to yield our members. Tremendous passage talking about that after he talks about how we've been born again. 
that we have victory over sin. And it's a repeated message. Okay, and so we should say no. Um, I need to keep moving. Here we go. Okay, the uh, fact now, going a little bit further, there will be times you and I will not resist. It's a fact. That for most of us, though we don't have to, we will at times say yes to the temptation. We'll give in to it. When you do, we have this hope. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. We're in that same book. Let's go a little bit further. He says in 1 John 2, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Looking at that phrase, what's God's desire for you? That you don't sin. It's not a trick. It is written. He's written the word of God so that we don't sin. God is saying it is possible for us to live a life where we don't give in to the sin, the temptations anymore. But the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Let's take the next verse after that. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but the sins of the world. We're not rejected when we sin. If we're born again, God doesn't reject us. He doesn't disown us. We still have an advocate. We have one to plead our cause, one who has made the payment for our sin. We don't sin because he's done it. We don't want to do it. But we have this confidence that if we fall, God is still faithful to us. That God is still gracious to us. That's that whole idea. There is therefore now no condemnation. Chapter 8 of Romans, after he's talked about, we don't have to sin. Chapters, that's all chapter 6 that we already put up there. Chapter 7 is, but we still battle. Chapter 8 follows it and says, yes, we battle, but remember this. There is no condemnation. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who's going to lay any charge against us? God cares for us. He loves us. And nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Wonderful the way chapters 6, 7, and 8 in Romans are all laid out. Which brings us to that whole concept that our God is still faithful to us, loving to us, that he will forgive us. Do you remember that woman at the, at when, when the woman was taken in adultery? And she, Jesus Christ writes in the ground when he looks up, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he makes the comment, Go and sin no more. The expectation that he had for that woman in that situation is that she could overcome her past. And he gave her that hope, forgiveness, and then he gave her the strength to do it. God has done the same thing. Now, you're doing the Bible study. You're talking to a baby believer. Please make this clear to them. You're mature. You've been through it. But they haven't. They are going to all of a sudden, after they're born again, they're going to run into a brick wall. They're going to run into temptation. They're going to run into some of their, their past sins. are going to haunt them. And they're going to fall again. Let them know. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises up again seven times. That you and I have one with, have a unity with the Father, that He is still our Father. He is displeased that we might fall, but He'll forgive us when we call upon Him. He'll forgive us. And so we come this evening, we're going to be doing communion here in these next few moments, and we're going to do some singing first of all. As we do, let's be reflecting upon this idea that Jesus Christ has forgiven us, that Jesus Christ is faithful to us, that Jesus Christ does provide us who are born again forgiveness, and thank God he does. Aren't you, uh, true? Aren't you glad that he gives us forgiveness, that we get another chance and another chance 
Aren't you glad that we are like Jonah? That it, the word of God came to him a second time. Okay, we, we don't go out and disobey because we take advantage. But when we fall, our Christ, our comforter, our redeemer, he forgives us time and time again. What a great God we serve. What a great God. That's why this communion service, to just think about He's given me life, forgiveness, and then he still extends to me forgiveness as I need it. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful truth.